Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Guide and lead us in what you'd have us to see. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 17. We're going to read the whole chapter and see what we, where we get to on this. Starting at verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. And say thus, saith the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long-winged and full of feathers, which had diverse colors, came unto Lebanon, and took the highest branch of the cedar, and cropped off the top of his young twigs, and carried it into a land of traffic, and set it up in a city of merchants, and took also the seed of the land, and planted it in a fruitful field, and he placed it in the great wa- by the great waters, and set it as a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature, whose branches turned toward him and roots thereof were under him. So it, all, it became a vine and set, brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And behold, the vine did bend her roots toward him and shot forth her branches toward him that he might water it by the furrows of her plantations and was planted in a good soil by great waters that it might bring forth branches and that it might bear fruit, and it might be a goodly vine. Say thou, thus saith the Lord God, shall it prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof, and shall cut off the fruit thereof, that it wither, and it shall wither, and all the leaves of her spring, even without great power, or many people to pluck, up, pluck it up by the roots thereof? Yea, behold, many planted shall it prosper, shall it not wither, Utterly wither when the east wind touches it, and shall it wither within the furrows where it grew. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Say unto the rebellious house, Know ye not these things, what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon has come, upon, come to Jerusalem, and has taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him to Babylon. And hath taken a, the, of the king's seed, and made a covenant with him, and hath taken the oath of him, and he hath also taken the mighty of the land, and the king might be the base and not lift itself up, but that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors unto Egypt, that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that doing such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells that made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, even with him in the midst of Babylon shall he die. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make of him for him in the war by casting up mounds and building forts to cut off many people. Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, when lo, he has given his hand and hath done all thing, these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath that he hath despised and my covenant which he hath broken, even it shall I recompense upon his own head. And I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon and and will plead with him there for his trespass that he has trespassed against me. And all his fugitives with all his bands shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all the winds, and, and you shall know that I am the Lord have spoken it. Thus saith the Lord God, I also will take of the highest branch of this high cedar and will set it. I will crop off the top of its young twigs with a tender one and plant will plant it upon a high mountain and eminent in the in the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it and it shall bring forth boughs and and bear fruit and may godly be a goodly cedar and under it shall dwell all the fowl 
of every wing, and the shadow of the branches therein shall they dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree and have dried up the green tree and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. So we have here a story that Ezekiel is given as a parable or a riddle or a hard saying, whatever, however you want to look at it. And then he interprets it. So we're going to take a quick look at it. And it says in verse 1, And the Lord, where the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, put a... Put forth a riddle and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. And here, riddle is literally a, a difficult saying or a perplexing saying. Uh, and until he explains it, it's, it's, it's going to, it would be a perplexing story. And this is how the teachers oftentimes taught in Israel. Jesus taught with parables that people did not fully understand what it was being said until it was explained to them. Uh, we read Jesus' parables, and because we've read the explanations, they make lots of sense to us. But if we were listening in that day, his stories wouldn't have meant hardly anything to us. And, uh, but he, we, know that we know what it is, and in this one we're going to be showing just that. He says, A great eagle with great wings, long-winged, full of feathers, with diverse colors, came into Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. And here he's using Lebanon, but we find out as we go in that he's really talking about Judah. Uh, but because the cedar grows in Lebanon as its home, and Israel and, and Lebanon are right there next to each other, they're often interchanged in the scriptures. But he says, a great eagle has come. And if we go down to verse 12, the answer to that one is, behold, the king of Babylon is coming to Jerusalem. And he has taken the king and his princes and led them with him to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem. He conquered Jerusalem and he took away Jehoiakim, Jehoiakah, excuse me, and his princes into Babylon. And in the place of Jehoiakah, he put Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is Jehoiakah's uncle. And he said, put him in his place. Rather than doing what King Nebuchadnezzar normally did, conquering a nation and putting one of his generals in charge of the area, he left a king of the line of David to rule Jerusalem. All he did is extract a promise that they would pay taxes and, and behave. Nebuchadnezzar apparently never really wanted to conquer Babylon and destroy it, but he, it was in his way and he conquered it. And he didn't set out to destroy it. He was going to let them rule themselves and just be a vassal. And if you don't know the term vassal, that means a country that is subservient to another, even though they are separate. So he's going to conquer Jerusalem. Well, he conquered Israel, Judah. He didn't want to. Well, he didn't. Apparently, he didn't. He didn't do it. He didn't do to Jerusalem to what he did to most of them. Well, he would normally just take and move their people all around the all around his kingdom and put his general of his in charge and move places from people from other places there. But he did not do that on the first wave of captivity. He just put Jehoiakim in uh, Jedediah in his place. So he left a king of the line of David ruling over Jerusalem with the promise that he would be a good subservient vassal, pay his taxes and all this, and he was going to be able to run Israel as a, you know, part of, part of the kingdom of, of Babylon, but not directly ruled by them. Uh, you know, you have to understand what a vassal is. That, that's, the vassal is 
part of another kingdom, but they're also running separate. Even in the days of Rome, Jerusalem, because they capitulated to Rome and just divided them in, was a vassal. They were able to keep most of their own government, governing people in place until they kept rebelling against Rome, and then Rome sent military leaders in. But when they first started, it was, okay, you just pay your taxes and we'll be okay. Uh, and Jerusalem's done that quite frequently over their years, just become vassals. But they have always been disobedient vassals <laughs> and go into rebellion. And uh, so the great eagle is Babylon, long-winged, many colors, diverse colors, had many peoples in it, and took over. And he took the best, he took the cream of the crop. Nebuchadnezzar took the cream of the crop. He took the king and the princes. Daniel was a prince, and he went in this first wave of, of captivity, and he's going to be raised up to be a leader in, in Babylon. He was supposed to be just an advisor, and he ends up being way up on the top, as we find out, you know, second, second in command uh, through this. But we see this. He says, he took off the top twigs and carried them into the land of traffic or business, and it was set into a city of merchants. So he took all the best merchants and took them to Babylon. So Babylon is left with King Zedekiah. Most of the merchants are gone. Most of the royalty is gone. And he's got what we would normally call rabble. Okay? He's not at the worst that, he's going to, that they're going to be. But he's, the, the, the middle class is gone. He's got farmers and you know, some artisans, but not nobody of great importance. They all went into Babylon on that first captivity. And this is what he's saying. That he, and then he took the seed of that land and planted it in that field. And that's what he says here, that Zedekiah, the, sons, the, the king's seed, has been put in place. And Zedekiah is the uncle of, of uh, Zedekiah. And this is only because I understand the history. It's not in the scriptures. You're not going to find it. I'm just trying to explain who the players are <laughs> because this is a historical event. So we know who the players are in this, in this parable and the, and, the, and the definition of it. And he says, he placed that seed in the land and planted it in a fruitful field and he placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree and it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature whose branch tur branches turned toward him and the roots thereof under him. So it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. And here he was this whole idea of verse 14 that he was, he put in Zedekiah so that there wouldn't be this great big uprising and Zedekiah built a kingdom in there. And then Zedekiah got proud. He thought he had been strong enough. He had been there for just a year or two. He didn't spend a long time there. And he got proud enough to decide that he wanted to rebel against Babylon. And he is going to make overtures to verse, what verse 7 says, to another great eagle with great waters. And we go into verse 15, we know that that other great eagle is Egypt. Egypt is the power in North Africa, south, Southwest, Middle East, and Babylon is in the Northeast, North, Northeast part of the Holy Land, Promised Land, Middle East area. And Israel has had the misfortune of being in the center of, the, of multiple great powers all through its its time. In the early days, Egypt ruled all that area. Okay, if you look at any Western civilization book, you'll see that Egypt ruled the Middle East for many, many, many centuries. Then it broke down and Assyria 
took, a, took over in that area. Egypt never became a totally powerless entity, but it was dwindled in power. But it was always one that people would go to. They, were, they, they gave mercenaries all through history. Okay? They were not strong enough ever to rebuild their kingdom, but they oftentimes would try to help other, other places. And we see this in uh, the battles between Israel and Judah. Oftentimes they were making overtures to Egypt to come and help them. Sometimes to Syria, sometimes to you know, different, different people to try to come and help them. It's, it's very interesting when you read 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, because it's all about that political intrigue and, and uh, all the stuff that we think is all new in our day and age, but it's always been going on forever, that these different countries have tried to buy help from other places and pull other, other people in. It's always been there. Zedekiah is going to do it to try, to try to take the second greatest nation to try to make a battle against Babylon. And God is not very happy with this because he said, you made a promise. You made a promise to follow and honor Nebuchadnezzar. And God says, you're going to be judged because of it. And we see this issue that's coming up, and we're going to see that Zedekiah is going to be taken into Babylon as well. And another son of David is going to be put on, on it, and he will be the last king of Israel because he's going to do the same thing Zedekiah does. He's going to, he's going to rebel and not, not follow through like he's supposed to. So we're going to see this intrigue in Zedekiah and is just a short time, and then the next son is even shorter time before he, he rebels, and they're taken completely into captivity. And this is the time that Ezekiel's teaching in. We have Jeremiah preaching in Israel. We have Ezekiel, who went in the first wave of captives, preaching in Babylon. And he's predicting what's going to happen and telling what's going to happen in Jerusalem, all through that area. All through that area. I mean, all the post, post-exile prophets are, are in Babylon. Babylon. Daniel is in Babylon. Uh, Isaiah is much earlier. But they're pretty much all multi-god worshippers in Babylon? In Babylon, yes. They're, multi, they're multiple god. But there was a few remnant that... They're, they're, poly, they're polytheists for the most part. Indicates in the story of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar becomes a follower of the one true God. Because when we study Daniel, we see how he was brought, Nebuchadnezzar was brought under the influence of Daniel... <laughs> To the worship of God. Short of having Nebuchadnezzar the Kedah was in Iraq. Well, from that area. There was no Iraq at that time. Yeah. It would be more correct to say that Iraq would be part of Babylon, the territory of Babylon. Well, it was started out as a city and became a mighty empire. It's one of the great empires of the world. You have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greek, Roman Empire. And that was the last of the great Roman empires. Those are the pictures when, when Daniel saw the vision, he saw the vision of the different empires that were coming in the future, which is why everybody, when you read the book of Daniel, always tried to say Daniel was written after. You know, had to have been written much later because he clearly identified all the great nations and empires that were going to rise up. He did it in prophecy, yes. Yeah, he, he, the only one that it was in existence when he prophesied it was Babylon. And all the ones followed 
one right after the other, and he gave great prophecy on, on that. And they found, because they found records of it long before they, you know, before they happened, they've been able to prove that he prophesied and not, not wrote history. But anyway, Zedekiah is going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 15 it says, But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt, that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that that doeth such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? So God's saying, you know, he's breaking his covenant. God is very serious about keeping our word even when it isn't something that we probably should have made in the first place. As long as it's not against him, he's going to say, keep your word. And here he's telling Zedekiah, you made a promise. And his promise was, literally, we find out in other places, his promise was made upon the temple in the name of God. And Nebuchadnezzar looked at him and said, what, would, what could I get this guy to make his promise on, his oath on, that would be sacred to him? And it was Jehovah and the temple that he made his, made his oath on. So that follows out today that the people that make, uh, not necessarily that you can It goes much further than just making a promise to God. It means literally making a promise to anybody to do something. God wants us to keep our word. And in the old days, it used to be keep your word even to your own hurt. Okay, I made a promise that I was going to do something this Saturday. And all of a sudden, somebody comes up and give, offers me tickets to the, to the biggest sporting event that I, that I love for free. And I've already got plans that I promised to do with somebody. What should I do? Most people would go to the person they promised that, hey, you know, something has come up. I, you know, I've got this great opportunity. I can't, I can't give up and, and break their promise to the one person. So I'm going to ask them if we could do this another day. Depends on whether it can be put off another day. I would say that it's probably wrong unless they're the one that broaches that topic with you. Kids get this happening to them all the time. Hey, we're going to go to the park on on Saturday. Hey, I got to go to work and make some money because we need to pay this bill. But the, but the point is we keep, we're, God really does expect us to keep our word. And here he's saying, you made a promise. You made a covenant to be obedient, be a good vassal, pay your taxes and be, be, be taken care of. And if he had followed through with that, they probably wouldn't have had this long captivity that they had to go through because he was one of those things that he broke his word and God took said, you're going to go, now you're going to go to Babylon. You were going to be king until you died. Now you're going to go to Babylon and be a prisoner. And this is something that we see God is serious. We've talked about this in the past. What does God define truth as? To tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. We tell what we know. And that's what it says in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The truth is speaking all that you know. What, we, what do we consider truth in our day? As long as you didn't ask you, and I didn't lie to you, then I, didn't, then I told you the truth. And that's not God's definition of truth. If we go to court, we, we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But if you listen to a lawyer, they'll tell you, you answer just the question that's asked and nothing more. Been there, done that, where the, court, where the, where the lawyer said, you answer just what is asked. I had one lawyer on one say, say I, don't want you in, I don't want you even being there because you'll tell the truth, because I told him I'd tell the truth. So he goes, don't be there, I'll represent you. Now, I don't know what he said, because I wasn't there. 
But this is the way our legal system works. Our legal system works on, the, on your swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing. The truth, biblical definition of truth. And yet, we don't tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth when we're on the stand. We only tell what we're asked. But that's, I'm just saying the whole thing about this is, you know, you're told just what, uh, nothing, no details you're not, that you weren't asked. So you're not telling the, you're not necessarily telling the biblical truth. Huh? Omission is a lie. Omission by God's standard is a lie, but by the world standard, they're not considering that a lie. And I didn't tell you that I'm not lying. As far as God's concerned, you have. But by the world standard, if you don't, omission, they don't consider a lie. God considers it a lie. So here he's saying, this guy made a promise. And he didn't plan, you know, he probably didn't plan on keeping it even when he made the promise because it was basically a forced promise. I'll make you king if you promise to be a good, good vassal. And he made that promise. And God's saying, you made a promise, you need to be keeping it. And we see this all through scripture where people don't keep their word and God brings judgment upon them for it. If God gives you a job to do, don't try to run the other way because he'll bring you back one way or the other. If he's got a job for you, you will fulfill his job one way or the other. You'll do it voluntarily, kind of. Jonah's a great example. Go to Nineveh and preach, preach that they're going to be destroyed. Uh, okay, God, I want you to destroy them because they're our enemies. So he starts running to Spain on a boat. God sends a storm, sends him into the water, gets swallowed by a fish. Fish takes him to to a river, up a river but to Nineveh, spits him out, and, and he decides to preach. Now, his message wasn't all that great. We, uh, you know, your, his message was simple. You're, you're, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. He didn't even tell him to repent. He said, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. And yet the whole city turned to God. Kind of an interesting, interesting thing on how God can work, even with a servant who doesn't want to be doing what he wants to do, what, want him to do. But we see that God has put Zedekiah in this position, allowed it to happen, and he rebels. Why? For whatever reason, he gets a little arrogant. He thinks with, he thinks with whatever little strength he's been able to muster. And with Egypt's help, he's going to be able to defeat Nebuchadnezzar. Well, it's a pretty good reach from, from the Middle, Middle East, especially in those days. Uh, it would be a pretty good uh, boat ride. He was moving about as far away as he possibly could in the known world at least to the west. He could have gone to India the other direction, but then he'd have to walk the whole way, so riding a boat was easier. Uh, plus going east took him too close to, you know, took him to the general direction of Nineveh, even though it was northeast. But God put him in, and he decides he's going to go to Egypt. And it looks what, it, what he's asking for is horses and people. Horses. Egypt has always been well known through history for its horses and for its battle horses. Up until the Persians, they were the top of the line for horses. Uh, Solomon gathered many Egyptian horses there in his day. God told the people of Israel as they, were do, as they were settling, do not gather up horses. In other words, do not gather up military strength to take your hope in. God does not need military strength to be able to deliver his people. And we've seen this over and over in the, in the books. You know, Jerusalem's surrounded by 120,000 people. And then one night, the angel of the Lord came and destroyed 120,000 people and gave them victory. And that's what the prophet said to the king. You know, they're selling the donkey's head for, for many shekels. I can't remember how many. 
And he goes, tomorrow you'll have more food than you know what to do with. And the king and everybody else basically laughed at him, like, yeah, right, you know, this is, you know, we don't have enough people to break this, this siege of our, of our town, and God killed the entire army. So we see God saying, I am your deliverer. And this is why I keep teaching us, you know, even in, this, in our day when, I, when, when we have just no real physical battles, he still wants to be our defender of us. And he is perfectly capable of defending us. I love the story of Elisha as he's up in his mountain house and his army circles him and, and goes to arrest him and he calls down fire on the, on the guys. If they're his child and they will not, cannot behave, probably. Behave. Probably, if they're his child. If they're bringing down the, the testimony, most likely. I believe so anyway. I believe so anyway. Uh, I can't necessarily point to any scripture other than God taking out people that didn't, didn't honor him. Yeah. Bab- ba- Balaam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Balaam. Balaam answered technically. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I do believe that God will take out a child of His who just will not allow Him to let Him live victorious, you know, live live victoriously through that person. And I think it's an extreme thing, but I do believe it happens. I'm sorry. When you say he'll take out, take him home. Take them home in their life. If they're, if they're destroying the testimony of God through claiming to be a Christian with no victory in their life in any way, shape, or and they, and they are a Christian, I think God will take them home rather than continue to let them tear down the testimony of Christ. Uh, we see this all through the scriptures where he sends people, you know, where people have been taken. And sometimes it's a way to bring... Through their death and, and their memorial, they may be able to get a witness to somebody and get, bring people to Christ. Ananias and Sapphira could very well be. In their case, they, lied to the, they were trying to lie to the church. It could have been an example of something. In that case, because God does demand holiness in his people. And if we will not be holy, then he will judge to the point of death. Ananias and Sapphira may have had more problems in their life than just that one moment of greed. Yeah, I can't believe that that was the only point in greed that they had in their, in their life, that God took them out for just one thing. And they wouldn't have been tempted to do it if they hadn't had other, other ways. But yes, I do believe that God will take out somebody who just will not live for him, especially if they're claiming to be Christian and are. You know, if they're not a Christian, he's not going to care. But if they are a Christian, he'll care. Yeah. I think Cain is a little separate case because of how how few people there were in the world at the time. There were only there were only a handful of people when Cain Cain was being, but he did exile Cain. Yeah, Cain had the He did exile. There was a grace that he was allowed to live, but he was exiled and he started his families, his towns and everything aside from the rest of the family. Huh? No, Babylon is after the flood. Well, I mean, that, I mean, 
same mentality. Well, we don't know where he lived because the entire face of the world was changed with the flood. And that's what I've said before. I mean, after the flood, who knows where Eden was? Who knows where those rivers were? And we've explained, they named the, the, the two big rivers they saw, Euphrates and the Tigers, just as it was in, the, in Genesis. But what happened when, they came, when the pilgrims and the settlers came from the, new, from the old world to the new world? In, in, in New York, you've got the River Thames because they looked at it and said, this reminds us a little bit about the Thames that flows through London. Uh, we've got New Providence, New, you know, uh, New Amsterdam, New New York, all the different places that were just named after, after places in the old old time. They renamed rivers the same as what was in the past, you know, because they look, reminded them a little bit, or they just were not inventive enough <laughs> to to come up with a new name and said, well, I like the River Thames. We'll call this one the Thames. It doesn't really look anything like the Thames, but. Uh, but so, yeah, I don't believe that Noah and them landed anywhere near where the Garden of Eden really was. And even if it was, we wouldn't know because everything would have been totally changed after the flood. So who knows where they lived? All right, verse 16. As surely as I live, as, as I live, says the Lord God, surely the place where the king dwells, that made the king whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon shall he die. This is kind of poetic, but he's saying, Zedekiah, you broke your word to the king who put you in charge. You're going to go to Babylon and die there. And Zedekiah will be taken in the second wave of, of uh, captives taken out, and he will die in Babylon. And we see this happening, and here's God saying it even before. This is before this is happening. God's given the, giving the, the parable and the, and the prophecy that he's going to rebel. He's going to go to Egypt and he's going to be judged. And God is saying, when you do it, you will be punished. God is, and we go back to this, God is serious. When he says do something, he expects us to do it. When we agree that we're going to do something, he expects us to do it. Because honesty is something that is a place that God has. God cannot lie. When he says something, he will do it. And this is something we want to be able to truly trust. This is his word. When he says something in the word, we know that it either has happened if it's in the past or will happen for what's still in the future. And there's lots of things still in the future for us. And when God says it, it will happen. And we really want that to be true, don't we? We're betting eternity that God's word is true. We're betting our, future, our entire future into, the, into eternity future that God has told the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life to eternal life. And if not, we might as well just throw the book away because if it's not true, it's not worth, it's not worth looking at. It's not worth following. We're putting our whole word and faith in this. If God's word's not true, I might as well just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die because there's no future for me. If his word is not true, I know that it's true because I've seen it true. I know everything I can verify is true. Everything that he prophesied before, that, before it happened came to happen. So I know that everything thereafter is going to happen. It's very comforting to know that it holds up.
There's no place where it says one thing and something else happens. This is what happens in all the other great religious books. They'll say one thing and then something else totally will happen and then we'll be told, well, that's not quite what they said and they'll start twisting and moving things around. This, this has happened in the, the Quran. It's happened with the Hindu writings. It's happened with Zen writings. All these different groups that try to prophesy end up having to rewrite what they prophesied and be rewritten over the years. The, the Book of Mormon and the, and the Watchtower have both done the same thing. They've made predictions. And then they go, and it didn't happen. They've had to, oh, well, let's kind of hide this, and it never really happened, and we'll rewrite it. And we have different versions of the Bible, but they all say the same thing. As long as they're properly translated, they'll say the right thing because they can go back to the original documents. Most of the older books have no documents to go back to. It's an amazing thing with the Word of God, how many documents there are from antiquity to prove its accuracy. Now, we look at the Bible and there's 15,000 scraps of the, of the Greek New Testament, most of which are from no, no later than 200 years after Jesus was born. Do you realize what a miracle that is? You know, we have no original copies of anything that Shakespeare wrote, and he was just a couple hundred years ago, and we have no handwritten copies of what he wrote. And many of what's been written are so different, we can't even be sure what he wrote. Even though teachers teach it all the time that this is what he wrote, we don't know for sure what he wrote. Huh? There's lots of copies of what he wrote. You're saying like exact manuscripts. Right? There's many that contradict each other. Yeah, there's many that contradict each other. And this is not uncommon with old writings, that there will be contradictions on it. They compare and they try to figure out what the original said by saying, okay, we've got 50 pieces that say this on this word and, and only three that say something different. Yeah, all of his plays have different words in it. Not that significantly change his plays, but they have different words. And in the Greek, the only thing that we sometimes miss are the little accent marks and stuff, and it doesn't really change the word, it just changes the pronunciation or the, the tense of the word, but it's still the right word. So we know the right words. We see the Old Testament is even better. It's, it is because of the rules that the rabbis put on it, when there is a multiple copy, and that's hard to find because of the way they, they did it, they are all very straightforward what it says. We have things like the Iliad, you know, the Greek, Greek epic Homer, Homer Iliad. And there's not very many copies of it. I think it's five to 600 of them or something like that. And that's just from a few hundred years before Jesus. And nobody, nobody doubts what it says. <laughs> and yet people will doubt what the scriptures say just because, because we only have 15,000 pieces of manuscript. Yeah. And you've got to think, why? Why would people doubt the Bible when there's that much evidence of what it says and they'll believe all these other things that we have with no handwritten documents and nothing that goes back? You know, it's, it's an amazing thought. But God's word stands the test of time and he's protected it. And he said, here's your evidence. Do you want, to be, you, want to, you want to believe these other books? You have no problem believing these other books. We don't know anything about them, but you won't believe the one that has 
by far more evidence than any other ancient book, and you're going to question it. Why? Because they don't want to believe God. It's really what it is. They choose not to believe God, so they'll ignore the evidence. And this is something that is very crucial for us to do. It has been very interesting that the people who will try to disprove the Bible as honest scholars end up as Christians. Because the more they dig into it, the more they realize it has to be true. And then they have to make a decision at some point. Am I going to believe what the facts tell me? And you will eventually have to go with the facts or just turn, literally choose not to believe what the facts say. When I look at the Bible, I look at this and say, this is the most scientific, logical book there is in the world, and it matches true science. And we were able to pin our hopes, our thoughts, and everything on it because of how accurate it is. How wonderful a book it is, written by 40 different men and not a single contradiction in it. We, we need to understand that, that how, we have to understand how miraculous that is. If you've ever done any kind of study on any field, you can find contradictions in, in any two books, sometimes even written by the same author, you'll find contradictions in. And try to make it out of two or three authors, and you're going to have a, a mess. A piece has, each author has a different take. Different take, different, different, take, different, different event. But we're not even talking about just a different take on the event. We're talking about literal contradictions in what they say. It's one thing to say the idea of I've witnessed something from four different corners of the street and I told my, my story. I saw the elephant from a distance I, and the other guy saw the elephant standing right in front of its leg. is going to look a totally different picture than the guy seeing him from you know, four, you know, four blocks away up on the, on the top of the building. So the difference is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John no, that's not difference. That's just different. That, is, that would be expected differences. Because if you had, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said exactly the same thing on every single story, the critical person would say, well, they got together and decided what to write. Okay? And so if they wrote it, we would be yelling collusion. You're trying to prove your point by colluding together and, and telling us what we... written from the perspective of the author and would be expected to be different. Good example, Ma I believe it's Matthew who says that Jesus was, was sitting in the trial and they smacked him in the face and said, prophesy, tell us who, who hit you. Okay, well, what would be hard? If you're looking at me and I smacked you, you'd know exactly who hit you. Well, I believe it was Luke who said they put a bag over his head and hit him. Matthew, for some reason, left out the little detail of they put the bag over his head. And so when we read Luke, we go, oh, okay, that explains why it's so difficult for him to tell them who hit him. So, again, this is where we see the, the evidence, the proofs, the, the different people telling the stories where they put together, and you put together all the stories, and all of a sudden it goes, oh, all the details are there. When we get to the place where the each... Each one of the uh, Gospels tells us a little different amount of people go to the, to the tomb. Well, that's not really a big, big deal either because if, 
if Gary goes to town tomorrow and he takes you with him to town, but he just tells people he went to town, is he lying? No, he's just, it wasn't that big a deal to say you went to town with him. You'd be telling the town, I went to town with Gary, and you'd probably add the detail of who you went with. Neither one of you are necessarily lying. You're just, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't wouldn't matter to his story that he took you. He's not going to tell him every single, everything, every single point of every single thing. And the Gospels bring that out, which gives us the evidence of why they're true. Because they don't do anything contradictory. They complement each other and say, okay, well, Mary went. Okay, but she went with the other Mary and Salome. Right. Others talk about more things and bring out different, different parts of the story. And when you put them all together and you say, well, they're not contradictory. They're just... You know, it wasn't Mary went and then she came back and then she went with Mary and Salome and she came back and then she went with another. No, it just, he didn't say that every single person went, you know, from every point of view. Back to that thing where everybody has a different angle. A little different angle, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it contradicts. Now, a contradictory story would be if I told you, you know, I went to the corner and a circus went by and at the same moment a military parade went by. Now, that's contradictory. If there's two different people telling you on the same day, on the same time, a circus went by, but you get that idea. Some of it, you know, it would be contradictory in that case. A witness to a crime will all tell you certain different things that they saw. And again, if a police went to the crime and, and four witnesses all came up to him and said exactly the same thing, right, you would go, okay, these guys are part of the group that robbed because now they're trying to, or they're part of a cover-up. Uh, you, but you're always afraid if you're doing a cover-up, you, know, you can't have people telling different things because that can then contradict. So you always get together and you try to make a collusion and then your collusion stands out because you're all telling the same story. And exactly the same story. And you'll see it, you know, if you watch any detective movie or police movie all the time, they're, they're going, uh, you know, we got these guys in, they're saying exactly the same story, we need to get one of them to break because they're lying. Okay. So they separate them and the, story, the stories are meshing really well and we know that they're telling the truth. That is why we know the Bible is true is because of no contradiction and how well they mesh together and, and bring to, out deeper facts. And this is what police officers would do. This is why police officers oftentimes will interview somebody three or four times because all of a sudden they'll say that one little thing that they had left out, maybe not on purpose, they just had, they didn't think it was important. We leave things out of the story because we don't think it's important. My example, if Gary takes you to town, he doesn't mention it, but you know, something happened, he goes, yeah, I was in the car with, so, oh, well, let me now talk to this person, <laughs> and this person can now collaborate the story that you were, where you were, you know, whatever it might be. The, the point is we get that building of the evidence. I read in part of this that Ezekiel's story is also told, Second Kings, how come that is? Part of Ezekiel's story is also told in Second Kings. Yeah, because Second Kings is the end of the kingdom. That's part of where I get the history of of Jehoiada, uh, uh, Zedekiah, and Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiachin. You got to remember, much of the Bible overlaps on itself. First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles are historical narrative of the kings. Each of the prophets prophesied during those periods of the kings. So you've got like Isaiah who preaches, who is during the king of Uzziah and many kings thereafter. So, we, 
So you got kings that are overlapping. You got prophets that overlap. The prophets are 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 behind kings and chronicles, but they really lived in that time. They lived in the various times of the various kings, depending on which prophet it is. Like Isaiah's at the earliest part of the kingdoms. Jeremiah's at the end of the the kingdoms. All these minor prophets are scattered all throughout there. Some are northern kingdom, some are southern kingdom, which is why as we study them, we'll explain who, who they are, who the kings are that they, they're prophesying during. John the Baptist is the last prophet? Is that true? Most people label him as the last prophet or Jesus, Jesus yeah. depending on which way you want to go. Yeah, we haven't even talked about fulfilled prophecy yet as proof. No. That's unbelievable. Yeah, the, the amount of fulfilled prophecy is a proof of the scriptures as well. Uh, it's just an amazing, amazing thing that God has given that prophecies. And, and, and his prophecies are not ones that you just look at and say, well, it could be anybody. Jeremiah prophesied that, and Isaiah prophesied that they, Israel was going to go into captivity for 70 years. Isaiah said that Cyrus would be the one that sends them back home. A lot more specific than <laughs> Nostradamus. Yeah, well, no, yeah. You know, he says you're going to be there 70 years and Cyrus is going to send you home and he's going to come from the Persians. Now, Cyrus was a name that would not have been used in, in, in Isaiah's time. Persia was just this little province of desert with no strength whatsoever. Why they would be in charge over Egypt, Israel during that period of time and why somebody named Cyrus would be sending them back. You know, it's, you, know you want to talk about precise, you know, we see it. The Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and yet we see exactly what happens. He's sold for 30 pieces of silver, resurrected on the third day. I mean, all these different things. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and be called a Nazarite. You know, uh, quite, a, quite a far distance between those two towns. None of that would have made sense, and it bothered lots of people going, okay, we know that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. I don't understand why he's going to be called a Nazarite if he's born in Bethlehem. You know, and all these things that go on and on and on and on and to be the prophecies. There's well over 200 prophecies just about Jesus. And his birth. So anyway, he says, you've seen, verse 18, seen he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, and lo, he has given his hand and done all these things. He shall not escape. God will not let us get away with wrongdoing. Period. He wasn't going to let Zedekiah get away with it, and he doesn't let us. His children definitely are not going to get away with wrongdoing. There will be judgment. If we are not corrected and we are not judged by God for our wrongdoing, then we aren't his children, plain and simple. If we don't pay for our sins by either confession and putting it under the blood or being disciplined, we are not his children because God disciplines his children. But if there are sins that just for, you don't confess all of them, not because you, you didn't know about it, but just you just, you don't remember for this reason or for that reason. Or, you know, every while something will come up and you'll say, well, you know, I did this once a long time ago. Or, you know, you don't always retain everything you did. You confess the sins you know and, and put them under the blood. You can ask God to forgive you the things you can't think or bring them to remembrance. But what I'm talking about is not just that you commit a sin and don't confess it, but that you continually do the same sin. The person who just will not get victory over it for whatever reason, you know, they don't want to have a victory over it in most in many cases. They just choose to continue doing it. Like drugs? Could be drugs. I mean, sometimes, 
Sometimes there's reasons for it because of the addictive nature, but you started it in the first place knowing, you know, I don't think anybody ever starts drugs thinking this is the greatest thing to do. Alcohol is a big problem where a lot of people. Well, all of it comes down to what is our attitude toward our sin? What is our attitude toward our past? What is our attitude toward our future? And an attitude is really what's going to matter. Am I really enjoying what I'm doing and I'm enjoying it so much that I'm going to get stuck in it? Then I've got a real problem because I'm not focused on God. I need to be focused on God at all times. What do I do to get focused on him? I get into his word. I get into, I get into prayer. I get into spending time with other Christians who encourage me to, to do the right things. Where you're going to find these problems where God is going to judge people is they're, I can guarantee they're not in God's word. They're not spending time with God's people. And then they're wondering why they're defeated. Because they're not doing what God said to do in the first place. If you're out in God's word, meeting with God's people, you may have a place that's dragging you down, but your goal and heart is to grow. No, I've been, I've been thinking recently it's the problems of God with my family. I think of the line in my favorite hymn, are your garments spotless or are they white as snow? I have to keep my hands cold. When they come up, you, put them under, you confess them and put them under the blood of Christ. Satan wants us to remember who we were, not who we are. And he's going to keep bringing up our past to us. If it'll keep us from going forward, he will bring our past up. Should we not remember who we were at one point? For what purpose? Not to do it again. <laughs> That's an experience. Well, yeah, but some people do nothing but talk about the past. Right. Here is the way most testimonies from people who have a rough past go. They speak for 15 minutes. 10 to 12 minutes of it is, this is what I did in the past. Three minutes is, what did God do for them? There's a problem with that testimony. You're lifting up what you did in the past as this great big thing and, and minimizing what God has done. There's a huge issue with that. If you're trying to show in comparison, like this is what it used to do. 12 minutes against three minutes, and this is the average. Well, this is the that. average. This is average. Now, if they gave six and six, or seven and a half and seven and a half. Maybe I'd, I'd really like to see it. I'd really like to see it more. Five minutes of this is who I was, and now this is what God's done for me. Okay. Yes, if that's what you're doing, this is who I was. You know, I kind of know where you're from, and this is what I was like. But look what God has done in my life, and you spend the time really looking at what God's done in your life. Great. Uh, as much as I like the Pacific Garden Unshackled shows, they do the same thing. More than two-thirds of the show is, this is who I was, and this is who God made me. Great shows, great testimonies, but let's kind of get this right. Let's, this is who I was, and this is what God did for me. This is why we have to be careful of remembering what is our purpose for dwelling and you know, thinking and remembering the past. Is it to glorify God and show how much God has moved me out of? But if that's the case, then God should be getting more time and more glory than my past events. But even more important especially in our day-to-day -day life, we need to get rid of our past and say, God, you say that I'm perfect. You say that I have been righteous. You have, ch you have changed who I am. And start forgetting the past. Not forgetting the bad, you know, not forgetting that we were a sinner. No, don't forget that you were a sinner. But the more we dwell on the past, the more we glorify the past as, in some way and start minimizing what God has done. I would rather hear the testimony of, 
You know, hey, I was a drunken alcoholic, a sinner, you know, a, a druggie, but look what God's changed me to, and here's where I'm at today. And this is what he's done for me. This is what's important. What do we do? If we do not put our sins under the blood, Satan will constantly remind us, oh, you're nothing but a failure. You, you failed on this, that, and the other place. How can you think that you can serve God? You know, you're starting to serve God. Well, you know, you used to do all this stuff, and you're trying to tell people that it's wrong. You know, and that pops right into your mind, and you, you go, oh, yeah, I can't, I can't. And there's no way I could be telling all these people this because I was so bad. No, God put you through it so that you could tell, work with these people. You put it under the blood and say, Satan, no, it's under the blood. Jesus has forgiven it. I feel like the Bible points out, tell you this part of the story so it can set it up. And in the Bible, they're, they're short. This is what I was, and this is who I am. And it's always God who redeems you. It's not even you who redeem yourself. It's God doing the redemption. And this is what we need to be able to do to Satan. When he says, you're a terrible, rotten, lousy sinner, we go, yes, you're absolutely right, but it's under the blood. I'm going, I'm, I'm in Jesus Christ. Every time he reminds you, get into the habit of just saying, you're, you're, you know what I'm saying? You're right, but it's under the blood. I'm going forward with God because he's made me a new creation. You know, Satan, you're right. I, I was a sinner, terrible, awful sinner, but Christ has made me a new creation. He's put a new heart in me, and I'm now going to follow him to the best of my ability because of his strength. I mean, there's, there's parts of you that you don't feel like a new creation because you know you made it. But again, how I feel is irrelevant. What is truth? Jesus says, I am a new creation. Even if Satan comes along, even if my flesh comes along and says, no, you're a terrible, rotten, terrible person, I am a new creation. I have to grab hold of what God says and say, God, you are true, and everyone, everyone else, including myself, if I don't agree with you, is a liar. And the more we agree with God and say, you, what you say is true, the more victory we're going to have because we're going to be saying, God, I'm going to trust in you. My faith is in you. The just shall walk by faith, not by sight. I am not going to walk by what I think I see. I'm going to walk on what God says is true. I'm not going to walk on what I think I see about myself as being true. I'm going to walk in what God says is true. Satan likes to throw the facts at us. The fact is, I'm a terrible sinner. The truth is, I'm a new creation in Christ and, and, and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Satan can throw all the facts at me that he wants, but the truth is I follow what God says in the Word. And the more I live in the truth of God, the more the facts will become irrelevant and the less Satan will start attacking you with those facts because you're going to quote to him, just as, that, just as Jesus did when he was tempted, thus saith the Lord. Satan comes along, you're a terrible, miserable sinner. Yes, but you know what? I'm a new creation. I'm... I, I've got Jesus in my heart. I've got the King of Kings dwelling in me, and I'm a new creation. I'm going to heaven. You know, we need to be able to say what is truth. Not what do I think the facts are, not what, what people are going to say about it, but what is the truth. And the more you start quoting the truth, the more you will start living in the truth. Because you'll start saying, all the rest becomes irrelevant. What I've done in the past becomes irrelevant except maybe to minister to somebody. But even what I went through is not necessarily going to help me minister to somebody else because my, my experience was not their experience. 
This is why it's important. I've told everybody, I can help anybody get over alcohol and drugs if they will just recognize that alcohol and drugs is a sin because I have to deal with sin. And how do you deal with sin? You confess that it's a sin, you ask for strength to get over it, and God gives you the deliverance, no matter what the sin is. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, gluttony, laziness, you know, gossip, lying. lying, whatever it might be, sin is sin, and the answer is always the same answer. It takes the power of God to get over that addiction because all sin has addiction. All sin has addiction. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. We're getting some kind of pleasure out of whatever sin we're caught up in, period. You know, if we're gossiping or lying, it's because we enjoy the, the power we seem to have as we share these lies or facts about other people that nobody else know, knows, and we get this power, and it gets addictive. The more you do it, the more you want to do it, the more, and the bigger your stories have to be because you're just like drugs. You need more of it to get the same, same feeling. So you tell bigger stories and bigger lies and, and bigger gossips to have the same feeling and same authority over other people, you know, over other people because I know things you don't know. Same problem. Same exact problem. Sin is sin. Has to be put under the blood of Christ and live in the victory of God. Period. It's the only way we get through it. We're a little over, but I wanted to take the last two verses. Verse 22 and 23. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop it off of the top of his young twigs for a tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and, and eminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel, I will plant it and shall bring forth its brows and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell the fowl of every wing and the shadow of the branches thereof they shall dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord, that I have brought it down from the high trees and exalted the low tree and the, and the dry dried up green tree and have made a green tree to flourish. And I, the Lord, have spoken this and have done it. This is a messianic psalm, a messianic prophecy that he's going to take from the seed of David and create a, a seed in a very high and a prominent place, and that's Jesus Christ being raised up. I just want to get to that and finish off this chapter because it, it is a quick messianic message that Jesus was coming. He had the seed of David. Even though the seed is going to look like it's gone because of these kings that are in rebellion as they go into captivity and lose their country, Jesus is the last of the kings of David that can rule. He's the last one they know is definitely a son of David because it's, there's no genealogical records after him. After Jerusalem was destroyed, the genealogical records were lost. And Matthew and Luke both put a genealogy of Jesus all the way back through the, the seed of David that could have been verified at the temple when it was written. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have. Lord, teach us to have faith in you and to trust in who you are not to believe the lies and facts that Satan throws at us, Lord, that we'll always live and believe in your truth. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.